for a church to be rooted in its deepest traditions and for a church to cling to its oldest stories, for a church to stand fast on the very elemental truths of who and what it is called to be, for a church to stand so firm it must in fact be a church on the move because Jesus is on the move and he always has been and you can't follow Jesus by standing still. That's the Reverend Matt Gaventa, and today he shares a powerful message of faith called Best Position Player. I'm Peter Wallace. It's day one. Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's historic Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Now to introduce this week's preacher, here's our host, Peter Wallace. Thank you, Sherry. Today on Day One, we're delighted to welcome the Reverend Matthew Gaventa, Senior Pastor of University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. Before coming to Austin in 2017, he served as Pastor of Amherst Presbyterian Church in Virginia and as Chaplain at Sweetbriar College. Matt is an acclaimed writer and preacher and also co-hosts the podcast Sunday Morning Matinee for the Christian Century Online. He holds degrees from Georgetown University, the University of Iowa, and Princeton Theological Seminary, and was the 2012 recipient of the David H.C. Reed Preacher Scholar Award given by Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. Matt, welcome to Day One. Thanks, Peter. Glad to be here. You were last with us four years ago, B.C., before COVID, and you continue to serve as Senior Pastor of University Presbyterian Church in Austin. First, give us a snapshot of the church, its ministries, its people. UPC is a congregation among many historic mainland congregations right on the west campus of the University of Texas, and we are effectively around the corner from Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. So it's a a congregation with deep historic ties in campus and seminary relationship. At this point in Austin's continuing and emerging growth, our congregation is really spread throughout the city um, because most of the immediate housing that was for families in the area has been displaced by uh, by students. But mm-hmm. we continue to work with students, uh, be a place that is uh, open and interested in partnering with and working with those neighborhood relationship groups. We also are just down the street from the Texas state capitol. So mm. we're uh, increasingly engaged in what the legislators are attempting to do in in that corner of the world as well. As you say, Austin is booming with lots of tech firms and other businesses moving into an already thriving area. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about how you're living into the idea that we'll hear a little bit in your sermon of moving, getting out of yourselves, getting into the community. Well, I think it's a very good dovetailing question because to be frank, a lot of the folks that come into Austin at this point, we do get people who have moved from some other part of the world and some Presbyterian pastor somewhere else has recommended that mm-hmm. when they get to Austin, they come visit UPC. But a lot of folks who are coming to Austin don't care one way or the other about the existence of a church community. They're not looking for a place to be on Sunday morning. And so for us, that idea of a church moving is also an idea about a church just trying to 
make its good ministry visible to mm. the outside world, mm-hmm. which is not doable entirely within our sanctuary. It's something we have to get out of ourselves in order to do. Uh, so when UPC shows up at a feeding institution, at a homeless shelter, or when it shows up on the steps of the Capitol at a rally or a protest, that is good living out of the gospel and good mm-hmm. witness for us, mm-hmm. but it's also just good visibility to a community that doesn't instinctively know always what Sunday morning church is about. Mm-hmm. And so what have you learned about being church from the pandemic? I think we have learned to be just a little bit less attached to our building mm. than we had been previously. On the far side of this, now that we're able to safely regather, it's mm-hmm. been incredibly important and vital that we have that space in which we can do it. But at the same time, we have a lot of church members who are joining us over Zoom Sunday in and mm-hmm. Sunday out, not even at this point out of COVID panic, but because that is the convenient and easy way for them to be there. It's part of how they join our community. And so what does our church look like now? It doesn't just look like a bunch of people sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. It's this sort of invisible web. Hmm. We're welcoming church members from other states. We're welcoming church members from other countries who have found us virtually. And so trying to even identify what the congregation is becomes more and more difficult. But I think it does mean that we are rooted less now in a physical structure and more in a web of relationship Mm. that feels really vital and sustaining. Mm -hmm. Earlier this year, you gave one of the midwinter lectures at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary on preaching and its relationship to stand-up comedy, which sounds fascinating and fun. Give us a (laughs) mini-lecture. Peter, everything I say is a (laughs) mini-lecture. So I was inspired because about a decade ago, there was a comedian named Tig Notaro mm-hmm. who was working a comedy club in Los Angeles during a season in which she discovered that she'd been diagnosed with cancer. And she goes up to the microphone one night right after getting this diagnosis and begins a set to an unsuspecting room by saying, I have cancer. Mm. And then just goes from there and spends half an hour in self-disclosive, deeply painful, and incredibly funny material. (laughs) It's gripping, and it's clearly very cathartic for the room, even as they are totally unsuspecting. Mm -hmm. They start getting uncomfortable. She starts managing their emotions, which is fascinating since they're not the ones that have cancer. And it struck me that that experience felt homiletical Mm -hmm. in a way, Mm -hmm. that there was something prophetic about it, that there was something corporate about Mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. that these people were navigating some of the same questions that I think preachers navigate about how much of themselves is at stake when they preach, how do they manage the relationship with the a congregation who is bringing their own assumptions and own expectations into the experience. It struck me that if something homiletical was happening there, then preachers might have some need to do a little bit of learning about how modern communication works Mm -hmm. with one person at a microphone in front of a room and stand up being the closest analog, I think, to what preachers are doing on Sunday morning in contemporary culture anyway. And so 
I wanted to spend a little time with that. And I, I talked both about the ways in which stand-up for me has helped me realize um, the importance of putting myself in my sermons, mm. that there is mm-hmm. vulnerability to be done there, that being subjective is important. Even, and I know we're never supposed to make ourselves the hero of the story, and I think we can successfully avoid that, but that the long history of trying to keep the eye out of the sermon, I think has done more damage mm-hmm. um, than it has good. And so I, I wanted to use comedy to to get at that a little bit and to sort of ask some questions about even what it is we're trying to accomplish when we get up into the pulpit in the first place. Mm-hmm. You co-host the podcast Sunday Morning Matinee for the Christian Century. What are you up to with that? Yeah, that's a podcast that I co-host with uh, the Reverend Adam Harrelson, who's up in Philly. Uh, he and I are good friends and colleagues from from seminary and hence. Our task there is to use movies to try to get at questions of theology in the church. The project is is really designed to help increase the the movie and cultural literacy of the church as a whole. We We want preachers and Christian educators to know how to watch a movie, hmm. how to think about what it's doing mm-hmm. or what effect it might have, and to be able to carry those skills into TV or whatever other kind of pop culture references they mm-hmm. want to make. We believe that there's good value in upping the that literacy for the church as a whole, so we're just trying to model it. And mm-hmm. we, we'll take a movie every episode and ask some theological questions about it and maybe ask some lectionary-based questions about it and it's a fun project. It certainly gives us energy, and uh, I, I think it has been valuable for the the few folks that are that are hanging out with us. <laughs> well, Matt, your sermon today is based on the gospel lesson for this Sunday from Luke chapter twenty three, focusing on Christ's crucifixion, and we'll hear it in a moment. It's a deeply moving encounter between Jesus and the two criminals, all hanging on crosses. What struck you in this text when you prepared your sermon? Well, I think you'll hear what what strikes me is Luke's depiction of the crowd. Mm. I mean, it is a very detailed description. He sort of walks you through what everybody in that scene is doing. It's like a diorama that mm-hmm. he puts together. But the crowd is given nothing. They're just empty bystanders in the background. And it would be easy to not notice that except that the people have been pretty active agents in Luke's story over the past previous chapters. Mm. And so that all of a sudden they're just bystanders struck me. And I wanted to wrestle with that a little bit. And it seemed trenchant to where the church is and its life as well. And so mm-hmm. that, that felt like the thread I wanted to pull on. Well, your message is entitled Best Position Player. Matt, thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you. When they came to the place that is called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. 
But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine this story again, if you will, not in words, but in pictures. Luke is every bit the artist, and he paints this moment, this climactic moment, with the finest brushstrokes. So linger in front of the portrait just for a minute. Jesus is in the center on the cross, his body beaten, his clothing gone, taken, auctioned. On either side, the two thieves hang, one on his left, one on his right. And then in the foreground, the soldiers offering sour wine and mocking looks. The religious leaders, too, are just behind, scoffing at him, pointing fingers, laughing. If he is the Messiah, let him save himself. If you look carefully, you can see the fine print, the inscription over the body. This is the king of the Jews. And then if you squint in the background, you can see the people. This crowd of onlookers, this vague congregation. Luke doesn't waste his paint on the people. Their faces are indistinct. Their expressions are indecipherable. All he tells us is this. The people stood by, watching. The people stood by, watching. But just because they're in the background doesn't mean they're not important. In fact, the people have been driving agents in the events that have led to this portrait in the first place. Only days earlier, Luke describes the gathering storm by reminding us that the chief priests and the scribes are trying to kill Jesus precisely because they're afraid of the people. Ironically, then, it's the people that bring Jesus before Pilate in the first place. And then, as you may remember, they're there in the crowd shouting, crucify him, And they're the ones voting to save Barabbas instead. So the tragedy of Luke's gospel isn't that the people are powerless to stop the story. The tragedy is that they have power, but they use it for such violent ends. Or, as is the case today, they just stay in the background. Maybe they feel helpless, dumbfounded, paralyzed. Nevertheless, as you can plainly see, they just stand there, watching. Now, hold that portrait for a moment and let me paint you a different one. When I was growing up, I played in the local youth soccer league, like everyone did, because we were good suburban kids. We were not, however, 
good soccer players. At least I wasn't a good soccer player. Most of the time, I would play in the left midfield, which I think was just the place that coaches put players that they didn't know what else to do with. And my strategy for playing left midfield was kind of like this. I knew that I wasn't very good. But I didn't want anybody else to know that I wasn't very good. So my objective every time was not so much to help our team win the game, but rather to minimize the possibility of exposing that I wasn't very good. And so I played as safely as possible. If our defenders passed the ball up into left midfield, I would try my best to keep it going and pass it up to our forwards. And if the other team got the ball going the wrong way and it came through my territory, I would do my best to run up and kick it as hard as I could back in the righteous direction. I was the guard of my own immediate patch of grass. You can just picture me standing there while the game flowed around me. I wasn't a great soccer player, but I could stand my ground. One year, at the end of the season, our coach decided that we wouldn't just get trophies, we'd get personalized trophies, each one of them engraved with the particular award that the coach had devised just for us. So, of course, somebody got best passer, and somebody got best ball skills, and somebody got best team leader, and we got to me, and I was handed a trophy that said, best position player. And I thought, at last, this is my vindication. Maybe I had been so much better than I thought. Maybe I had uncovered something about the tactics of soccer that nobody had ever figured out before, and here was my recognition. Maybe there was, in fact, something secretly ingenious about staying put and waiting for the game to come to you. But of course, that's not true. The next year, I don't think we won once. To this day... Best position player is the nicest thing anyone has ever said about my skills on a soccer field. And it wasn't until years later that I realized I had received something of a backhanded compliment. That I had just won a trophy for standing around and watching. So, two portraits. Not so different from one another, and neither of them so different from us standing here today. After all, we stand here today in a tradition that loves standing for things. From Luke's crowd standing in the background all the way back through to that famous picture of Martin Luther himself testifying before papal delegates and exclaiming, Here I stand, I can do no other. Standing for things is in the DNA of the church. It's in the DNA of the church I love. Even today, a church in my lifetime that has taken tough stands, a church that's been willing to take stands for economic justice, for the work of peacemaking, for the right of people to love who they love. One of my proudest moments as a member of the Presbyterian Church USA was several years ago when we took a stand against racism by formally adopting the Belhar Confession out of South Africa as one of our guiding documents. Belhar emerged from the resistance to apartheid and alongside its searing indictment of segregation, the confession literally calls the church to, quote, stand where the Lord stands. This standing for things is what we do, and frankly, the church has been so good at it, so good at standing for things, for as long as I can remember, somebody at some point ought to give us a trophy. And so maybe you see the problem. The field is so big, and the game moves so fast 
and all of our standing can amount to so much watching. And so now in 2022, the field is overrun with the brokenness of the world, and still more often than not, we in the church stand and watch. In 2022, the gap between haves and have-nots in this country is wider than at any time in living memory, and still the church stands and watches. In 2022, scientists now project that we will blow irreversibly past every conservative threshold for avoiding catastrophic climate change, and still the church stands and watches. In 2022, we face story after story of abuse and wickedness throughout our national dialogue, unlike anything in my lifetime and unlike anything permissible within the boundaries of a moral society, and still, more often than not, the church stands and watches. We stand and we watch, hoping, I guess, that the ball might come to us, but really, I think, terrified that the ball might come to us. Yes, Belhar calls us to stand where the Lord stands, to stand with the poor, to stand with the oppressed, to stand with the forgotten. But there's a danger in taking this too literally, because sometimes in order to take those stands, you have to move. Sometimes in order to take those stands, you have to move. After all, Jesus is on the move. Check that portrait again because he's not there anymore. Jesus doesn't stay on that cross. Luke paints a snapshot in time, but it's not the whole story. Jesus is dead, yes, but Christ is risen. The story isn't over until the stone rolls away, and this is precisely what the resurrection means. It means Jesus has too much work left to do, and he can't do it standing still. That's the magic of the portrait I would have you see today, like the paintings in some cartoon castle, the picture keeps moving. Linger in front of it, let your eye take in the sight of it, but don't get too attached, because Jesus is on the move. And even that crowd standing and watching linger long enough and even they start moving. Only a few chapters later, that same crowd gathers around the Pentecostal flame and gets overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit and flows into Jerusalem as the newly courageous apostles going into the world. Eventually, even that crowd gets moving. Eventually, all God's children get moving. In the northwest suburbs of Washington, D.C., there's an Orthodox Jewish temple named Ohev Shalom. And as an Orthodox congregation, they observe fairly strict Sabbath laws, including abstaining from access to the internet during holy days. And so it was a few summers ago, as the congregation emerged late Sunday evening from its worship for the Jewish holiday of Shavuot, and as they pulled out their phones and checked in with the world, that they finally learned what you and I had known all day, about a horrific mass shooting the night before at Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando. You may remember this news, 49 dead, 53 wounded. Now, I remember waking up on the morning of Sunday, June 12th, and reading about Pulse. I remember carrying that news into our Sunday services at the little country church I was serving. I remember the gasps from folks in the pews who had not yet heard the story. I remember lifting those victims to God in prayer. And then I'm sure I did what I would do on 
any other Sunday. Most likely, I went home, I had lunch, and I took a nap. But at Ohav Shalom, they were not so content. And when the services ended that Sunday night, as the congregation began to disperse into the street, the rabbi called them back and told them that they weren't done for the day. Shavuot is a pilgrimage festival, and so they were going to take a pilgrimage, a field trip of solidarity into the city, to a gay bar. In telling this story, the rabbi writes that he hadn't been to a bar in 20 years, much less a gay one. Nevertheless, off they went, about 12 members of the congregation in their formal worship attire and yarmulkes, and they found their way to Fireplace, a predominantly African-American gay bar in DuPont Circle. Now, you can imagine that portrait as they come down the sidewalk. It, it would be the setup to a joke if it weren't so bathed in tragedy. Indeed, one man standing outside the club looked at them a little askance, but when they explained what they were doing, he broke down in tears. His cousin had been killed the night before at Pulse. And then they went inside, nobody knowing what to expect. The mood was somber, of course, but it turned out that the two groups had all sorts of things in common. In one case, one of the patron's stepchildren had been bar mitzvahed at their temple. Another asked for a card so he could come visit. After a while, the bartender shut off the music and the rabbi began to offer prayers. They lit candles. They sang songs from the deep parts of the soul. Tears flowed. Barriers collapsed. And then the temple bought a round of drinks for the house. And it's just one little corner of the world, of course, but still, it's amazing what the people of God can do when they're willing to move. So here's the gospel, friends. We can linger, but let's not get stuck. Because the world needs a church that moves. The world needs the church more than it ever has, but specifically the world needs a church that moves. The world needs a church who will see this portrait, a church who will recognize itself in this portrait, standing there watching, but a church who will refuse to do the same. The world needs a church that moves, just as it always has, from that first Pentecostal morning. This, after all, is the paradox. For a church to be rooted in its deepest traditions— and for a church to cling to its oldest stories, for a church to stand fast on the very elemental truths of who and what it is called to be, for a church to stand so firm it must in fact be a church on the move because it always has been. Because those Pentecostal flames are on the move and they always have been. Because Jesus is on the move and he always has been. And you can't follow Jesus by standing still. So here's the good news. We will be on the move. You and I, we will be on the move. Whatever congregation we are today, you and I, we will be on the move. Whatever denomination we are today, you and I, we will be on the move. The church of Jesus Christ will be on the move. And when we feel helpless, and when we feel dumbfounded, and when we feel paralyzed, 
remember that we do not move alone. Remember that we move by the power of Jesus Christ risen from the grave. Remember that we move on the wings of the Holy Spirit that has moved through every time and place. Remember that we move alongside the grace of God that has traveled from everlasting to everlasting. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our preacher today was the Reverend Matthew Gaventa, Senior Pastor of University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. For a free transcript of his sermon, Best Position Player, call us at 404-815-9110. That's 404-815-9110. Or write to us at Day 1, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia 30305. Please keep in mind that Day One depends on the financial gifts of faithful listeners like you. We're grateful for your help. This is Peter Wallace. All of us at Day One wish you a very meaningful and happy Thanksgiving this Thursday. And next time on Day One, as we enter the holy season of Advent, we're honored to have with us the Reverend Dr. Teresa Thames, Associate Dean of Religious Life in the Chapel at Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey. Don't miss her challenging sermon, What Time Is It? That's next week on Day One. Day One Preacher Matthew Gaventa offers some final thoughts on his message today, Best Position Player. And Matt, you pointed out that line from the gospel text, the people stood by watching, watching as Jesus died on the cross. This crowd that had followed him, then turned on him, and now just standing there watching, doing nothing about it. You, you liken this inertia to your soccer playing days as a kid when you won the best position player award, essentially for standing and watching the other players. We all know how people are. Why do you think this is default behavior, this standing and watching like the crowd in the gospel? I think it's terrifying when the ball comes to you. <laughs> At least it was for me, right? I, I wouldn't. I won't speak for everyone, and I certainly have tremendous respect for those athletes who want it and can and run with it. But I think it's terrifying to consider our own agency and our own power in a moment like that. I don't have enough confidence in my ability as a soccer player to want the outcome of the game to hinge on me in some <laughs> way. So, like, just get it away from me. And obviously, the analogy to the church shifts depending on where you are in a historical moment. And certainly the the mainline church that I grew up with and know doesn't have the the kind of political clout that in some corners it remembers having from a, generations ago. But nonetheless, I, I, I think we tell that story enough, we start believing the decline of that power enough, we all of a sudden 
don't want it anymore. Mm. We don't want the ball because we don't believe in our capacity to contribute in meaningful ways to the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And and I, I, I want to encourage us to take those chances and take mm-hmm. those risks that might put ourselves on the line a little bit and might also do something beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, and you did call us, the church, to move in order to take the stands required to overcome climate change or racism or economic injustice. We need to move, take action. After all, you said Jesus is on the move. He's no longer on the cross. He's on the move, calling us to move with him. You shared the inspiring story about Ohev Shalom Temple in Washington, D.C., whose members moved down the street to stand in solidarity and pray with those gathered in mourning at a gay bar in the aftermath of the mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub. It was a beautiful example of being willing to move beyond comfort zones and into the community. What other ways might we put our faith into motion in our lives and in our communities? What I like about that story is how literal it is. Mm. They they literally yeah. just finish their service and then walk down the street, or maybe they get in their cars. I don't know the geography, but yeah. it is it is a tangible, physical. This is not uh, a metaphor. Mm-hmm. We're just literally moving, and in that, the display of it for the community and for the folks at at Firehouse is really powerful and tangible, and and I. I would encourage us not to think about that metaphorically. I would Mm. encourage us to think about it as like, what does it mean for our church to finish services on Sunday and then go be somewhere? Yeah. Whether it's for UPC, walking into the UT campus and being Mm. there or walking down to the Texas Capitol and being there, what does it mean for us to literally be outside of our doors? in a way that will create opportunities for fellowship and camaraderie that aren't conditioned on other people being willing to come into our doors. Mm-hmm. It's right. about putting our interests aside for a second, willing to be uncomfortable and take risks and decenter ourselves and go see what the world is. Mm. Matt, what's one thing from your sermon today that you hope our listeners will keep in mind in the days ahead? The challenging news of Jesus always being on the move is that it's, it doesn't let us get comfortable. Mm. And that can be hard to hear, and it can be hard to live into. But maybe there's a flip way of saying it. Maybe there's an, an inverted way of saying it, which is to say that if you and your church and your community, if you all are struggling with what change is going on in your church or in your life, what new thing is being birthed, what discomfort is happening in transformation, I would say that that may be a sign that Jesus is with you. Mm. And so we can hear that discomfort as part of the gospel. Matthew Gaventa, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Peter. Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Our program is recorded and edited by Donald Jones and produced by Peter Wallace. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on day one and forever.